Hey there, language lovers. I'm Shannon. And with me, as always, is Benny Lewis for a new episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Today, we're talking to Paul Jorgensen, creator of the extremely popular YouTube channel, LangFocus, where he creates videos sharing interesting facts about languages. In our discussion with Paul, we talk about learning languages with few accessible resources, strategies for making difficult languages easy to learn, moving to Japan and living in Japanese, dabbling in dozens of languages as a YouTube creator in order to create content, building a YouTube channel around an interest in languages, crowdsourcing audio samples of different languages and tapping into the language community, how Paul's language learning strategies have changed as tech has improved, being a public figure as an introvert, time management as a content creator, language learner, and parent, and the importance of non-negotiable routines, and being a role model and inspiration in the language community. If you enjoy this episode of the podcast, you can listen to the longer extended version of the episode over on Patreon. In our Patreon version of the episode, we talk about how to learn languages with different writing systems without apps, tips for overcoming stress and burnout, Benny and Shannon's strategies for speaking multiple languages without mixing them up, Paul's language survival resources, Paul's ideal day of language learning, and advice for a complete beginner to language learning. Learn more and get access to our extended episodes and other benefits at languagehacking.com slash Patreon. And as always, we love hearing from you. You can let us know what you think of the podcast over at languagehacking.com slash review. Now, let's get into our chat with Paul. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 107. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. I'm your host, Benny Lewis. I'm joined by Shannon Kennedy. And today we have a very interesting guest for you. We have Paul Jorgensen who you would definitely know from his YouTube channel, Lang Focus, which currently has 1.3 million subscribers. And it is one of the most fascinating places that you go for a detailed analysis of languages, language differences, dialect differences, and a whole host of other really cool topics on language learning. And I've really enjoyed seeing his channel absolutely explode uh, with these very fascinating, uh, detailed videos. So I want to hear all about his story, and that's what we're going to dive right into. So, Paul, before we get to your YouTube channel, let's take a, a step back a little bit and just hear how you got into language learning as a first thing. Okay, yeah, well, I think it started off like a lot of people. I had some uh, bad experiences at school with um, language courses, which didn't help me very much. We In Canada, we have to take French at school, um, but we don't really have to learn it. And most of us don't really learn it that well, uh, at least out west uh, where I'm from. Uh, so my initial experience with language learning was that I can't do it. But later on, when I was 19 or 20, I developed this deep cultural interest in the Middle East and in Israel in particular, and got really interested in learning Hebrew. And I found that because I had this intrinsic motivation, this cultural interest, it was much easier to actually make progress in the language and learn. Um, so that's really what got me started 
with language learning was that cultural interest. And um, the progress I was able to make was motivating. And I got much better at Hebrew than I had ever been in French in a much shorter period of time. So Hebrew is a pretty uncommon language for a lot of people to start with, and it doesn't have quite as many resources available as a language like French. So what sort of resources were you using when you were learning this language, and how did you overcome the slightly more challenging obstacle of finding resources? Well, yeah, in those days, it was a challenge because we didn't have a highly developed internet yet. That was back in the 90s. Now it's much easier. Back then, I had to go to the public library and take out textbooks with uh, cassettes um, or CDs and um, study at home. And I had to find like little scraps of material on the internet. And I remember finding an application online called Freetel, which is basically like a, it's a chat application. You can talk to strangers online using your microphone like we can now very seamlessly. But in those days, there was a, like a delay and you could only speak for 10 seconds at a time and this kind of thing. But I would look for people who speak Hebrew on Freetel and try to uh, practice with them. So it was a combination of just finding textbook audio courses and then trying to find opportunities to practice. But I didn't know any Israelis uh, in my hometown. It was hard to find people who speak Hebrew. So I had to use online resources. So people who are learning a language now are, are quite lucky and privileged that they have access to all these developed um, resources. And you can talk to people easily all over the world these days. So you just touched on the very next question I wanted to ask you, and that's about the writing system for Hebrew. So as you said, Hebrew has a different writing system. And for English speakers, it's a notoriously difficult system to learn because there are no vowels, especially back then when you didn't have tools like SRS to help you master the alphabet, what were some of your strategies for learning another writing system? Well, I wrote it. I wrote all the letters out by hand. I used one of those living language courses from like the 1960s, back when I started learning Hebrew, the very first course I learned, very first course I used, which I got from the public library. And it had exercises for each letter, like just writing out each letter numerous times. And then I remember looking at example words in the text and just copying them. I would just write all the words I saw, including the vowel markings and stuff. People don't normally write. So I would just copy the words and make sure that I could read the words. I remember covering the English pronunciation and only looking at the Hebrew and trying to read the words. And then I would reveal the English pronunciation to see if I was correct and did that over and over um, to learn to read them and then practiced copying the words in order to, to write them. So this, this is uh, how you got started with Hebrew, but of course you went on to uh, use languages as part of your university degree and eventually ended up in uh, Japan. So how did your language story develop after the 90s? Yeah, well, first, after studying Hebrew, I went to Israel a few times. I went there in 1997 and I went there again in 2000 and took a three-month Hebrew course called an Ulpan, an intensive course, which I took in Jerusalem. So I really dove into my cultural interest in Israel and in in the Hebrew language for a few years, but I wanted to move there. And I discovered it was kind of difficult to move there uh, unless you happen to be Jewish and then you get automatic citizenship or uh, you get a visa easily. So I wasn't able to move there and really indulge my interest fully. So I started looking for other places I was interested in because I knew I wanted to live abroad and experience different cultures and that kind of thing. So I ended up in Japan because you can get a teaching job here fairly easily. There are lots of opportunities for that. And because I knew a lot of Japanese people in my hometown in Vancouver, and I 
got along with them well and felt that they were really nice people. So I sort of felt welcome in that culture and developed an interest in it. So I started studying Japanese. I did language exchanges for about a year and just did self-study with textbooks and audio courses. But because of that uh, experience with the language exchanges, I felt quite confident uh, coming to Japan and being able to speak a little bit right off the bat. Yeah, and that was very helpful even on my first day in Japan because I'd had experience speaking to people. The person who was supposed to come and pick me up at the train station and take me to my apartment didn't show up. <laughs> so I had the key, but I didn't know how to get to this apartment. So I ended up talking to this elderly couple on the street and asking for help in Japanese. And then we had this five-minute conversation in Japanese while we were searching for the apartment, looking at this little map I had. So I remember thinking, wow, this is amazing. I just got off the plane and I'm already able to speak with these people who don't speak a word of English. So that was really inspiring and motivating and convinced me to, to learn more Japanese. And for anyone who's been to Japan, it's, they know that Japanese is a very, very useful language if you are in Japan, because people don't really speak English for the most part. Maybe 95% of people are not confident using English here. So Jap Japanese is definitely a very useful language to learn and very fun one to learn as well. Given that you live in Japan now, Japanese has proven to be a really useful language to you. And so I'm wondering, have you continued to go on and learn other languages since Hebrew and Japanese? Or have you found that you've needed to prioritize improving your Japanese? Yeah, I, I'm interested in languages in general, obviously. And I've studied Indonesian quite a lot, which is a language I'm really interested in. I'm interested in Indonesia as a country. So I tend to use those three languages the most. I focus on improving my Japanese and improving my Hebrew and my Indonesian. The nature of my channel means that I'm constantly dabbling in different languages and learning a little bit of them in order to make videos about them and just getting a general awareness of how they work. And I have studied other languages to varying degrees, but those are the main ones that I'm confident having a conversation in and feel like I, I need to focus on. It oftentimes seems like, especially if you're a public figure, of sorts um, in the language learning community. People kind of expect you to learn language after language after language. And people often post comments like, what new languages are you going to learn this year? And uh, they're disappointed if my response is, well, none. I'd prefer to improve the languages that I already know to some extent. I think it, it really depends what you want. Some people really want to learn lots of languages to a limited extent. And some people want to focus on two or three, or maybe even just one language and really um, get good at it. And I think either of those approaches are valid depending on what you're aiming for. Yeah, absolutely. And since you've alluded to your channel there, I want to actually dive into that. And I would love to hear the story behind that. What inspired you to start it and to put so much energy into it? And like, uh, how has that story evolved? Yeah, well, funnily enough, um, I mean, one of the inspirations for creating my channel was seeing your channel back in the day, because you had uh, a few videos that went particularly viral that I saw and then became a fan of your channel. Not only you, but um, also Moses McCormick is another person. And um, another one, um, do you know Maha from Arabic with Maha? Yeah, yeah, I've met her. Oh, you've met her. Okay. Yeah. I also saw her channel and was inspired by that because I was interested in Arabic. So seeing those channels sort of planted the seed in my mind that, hmm, that's interesting. I wish I could do that. I'm not confident enough in my language skills to be able to do what they do, but hmm, that's cool. I wish I could do that. And then years down the line, 
I think I was just not satisfied with my with my regular job. I was teaching English at a university, but I felt that I I could do more. Or I felt like I really wanted to do more or do something that could reach more people. I just felt unsatisfied with what I was doing, and I thought, okay, what can I can I do using YouTube that would excite me and that I could create some value by doing. And I was obviously interested in languages and I thought, I wonder if I can do that. I didn't feel like I could make a polyglot channel, uh, which showed me learning all these different languages because I hadn't really done that. But I thought maybe I can use my interest in languages in general to create sort of documentary style videos that teach people something without uh, having to focus on my own learning journey so much. So I sort of developed that that format that you see in my videos, a sort of discovery channel style video where I, I give the the history and development of the language, and then I document some features of the language and that kind of thing. And then I noticed that people like it. People liked that format, whether they were just people who are interested in history and culture, or they were people who are interested in learning languages. A lot of people seem to appreciate that format that I developed. So I just kept rolling with it. I have a question about how you create your content for your YouTube channel. So the videos that you create go really in depth on the different languages and, and comparisons and things. And so how what does that process of creating these videos look like for you? Yeah, it's a pretty intense process. I usually do, you know, a week or 10 days of research and taking notes and then constructing a script out of what I learn which is kind of funny if, if you think about it from the audience's point of view, because they don't really know I do that. So often they think, wow, you know so much, or wow, you're like an expert in a hundred languages. And really I'm not, I just, I use the videos as my own opportunity to learn. It's kind of like doing a school project. You learn something and by taking the material and cutting it down to its main core and finding a way to explain it clearly to the audience, you learn stuff yourself. So that's really what I do. And it seems like I'm kind of good at that. I'm, I, I have a skill of taking a lot of material and breaking it down into a, a much more palatable amount of material. So it seems to work out well. But there's that first stage of research and constructing the script. And then I do the filming, which is, you know, that's only one hour out of like 100 hours that I spend. <laughs> and then I, I spend a lot of time editing the video. Normally, I also get native speakers to appear in the video to give an authentic example of the, the pronunciation of the language. And I find those people through my audience normally. I put out a message on Instagram or on Twitter or something and ask for people to volunteer to give samples of their language. And now I have a whole you know big list of people who are willing to do it in the future. So whenever I need a native speaker, I just look at my list and contact someone and then they send me audio samples for the video. So it's really... It, it, that's one of the, the things that's that I really enjoy about creating the content is that the audience is now participating and I get to talk to all these interesting people from all over the world who speak all these different languages. And it must be uh, a very pleasant surprise for you of how well received it's been and how like several of your videos will pass the million views mark and that you've got now as many subscribers of, as you have. Like what was your plan of action to grow the channel? And have you been surprised by how, how well it's done over the years? Yeah, I've really, I've, I've really been surprised by the number of subscribers because initially I had in mind the number of 50,000. I thought, I wonder if I could do that. 50,000, I probably can't do that. And then when I got to 50,000, I thought, wow, like, 
I wonder how many people are going to watch this a few years from now. And eventually when I hit 1 million, I just, I felt like, wow, that's, that's really impressive that so many people are interested in languages. I've noticed that, yeah, I mean, it, it's really obvious when you, when you see my analytics, but a lot of people watch videos about their own language. Funnily enough, I think they're interested in how non-native speakers perceive their language and how they, they think about it. So they're really interested to hear my perspective on their language. Uh, and I also get tons of requests in the comments saying, do my language next, that kind of thing. So it's really interesting that the audience is not only like language learners, but also people who just want to know what you think about that particular topic. And also there are people who are interested in history and anthropology and just interested in countries and people who like to travel. It's really a diverse audience and from around the world too. If you look at the geographic breakdown in my analytics, it's people from all over the world. I think only 15% are from the United States, which is pretty rare for a YouTube channel. So you had said that you crowdsource some of the content and audio for the videos that you create. Do you also crowdsource what languages you feature in your videos? Or is that something that you decide on your own? How do you choose which languages you highlight in your videos? For the most part, it's, I mean, I have a long list of topics that I want to cover. And I, I basically choose the, the topic that I'm most motivated to do right now, because it is quite an intensive process to create one of these videos. And it's quite daunting. So I need to really want to do that topic in order to get through all of the, the work to create the video. So I just look at the list and I think, is this viable? And am I really motivated to do it at the moment? There are lots of topics I want to cover, but they're just really daunting. And I don't know if I can do them in a reasonable amount of time. So I keep pushing them off into the future and doing topics that are a little bit easier to, to make videos about. But yeah, so it's a combination of interest and like how difficult it is to make the video. What has surprised you in terms of the videos that have done the best or videos that you thought maybe uh, your interest was too niche and not as many people would watch it, but it ended up exploding despite that? What, what surprised you in this process? The first video like that was probably my video about Basque. I made a video about the Basque language, just sort of, you know, just out of interest. I wanted to learn a little bit about it. And the response was tremendous from people living in the Basque region. And I didn't know it at the time, but apparently I was on the news and, you know, I was teachers at school were showing my video to their students and things like that. And I had no idea, but everyone in the Basque region was sharing this video and it became really big there. So that's when I, I realized, okay, like there is some viral potential based on just people feeling proud of the videos that I make, just feeling like someone is appreciating their language and their, uh, their culture and maybe their country. So you had mentioned a little bit of your process learning languages in the past before we had a lot of the tools that are available to us today. Has your language learning process changed at all now that we do have all of this technology available to us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now uh, you guys are very familiar with italki. So I use italki to take lessons or to book lessons. And then I, I get on Skype or Zoom and, and talk to native speakers directly. That wasn't natural for me at first because I'm introverted and I'm not really that talkative. So for me, it's, it makes me a little bit nervous. I always get butterflies before I take a lesson. But when I force myself to do it, I realize like that's when I make the most progress is when I, I, I talk to native speakers. Uh, and also just consuming a lot more media. These days, I, don't, I haven't been taking lessons because um, I have a baby at home and I'm really busy. So it's hard to schedule the lessons at the best times. So I've just been li listening to a lot of news and podcasts in the languages 
that I'm focused on. So every morning I wake up and I watch the news in either Hebrew or Indonesian for like 30 minutes. And then I listen to a podcast in either Hebrew or Indonesian for 30 minutes. So I sort of take turns um, every day. I used to do both before I had a baby, but now I'm, I'm quite busy. So <laughs> I've compressed that two hours down into one every morning. So yeah, a lot of talking to native speakers when it's viable and a lot of media consumption. As an introvert, it would be a lot more difficult to put yourself in front of a camera, especially knowing that like potentially millions of people are going to see this video. So uh, now it's become part of your routine. But initially, like before your channel grew to reach the 50,000 subscriber mark, how did you push through this uh, intimidation and these kind of thoughts in your mind that like people are going to write these horrible comments and they're going to tell me I'm wrong or like the, the usual uh, pushback we might expect from putting ourselves out there. How did you push through that? Yeah, that that was intimidating at first. Like I had this motivation to make videos. So I made my first video and I remember sitting there for about an hour before I pressed the publish button. <laughs> sitting there for an hour, like just imagining all the, the bad things that might happen. And then I pushed the button and I realized, okay, nobody is watching the video. There's no response. So that's a little bit better than a terrible response, I thought. But it, that's never really been that bad for me. I think as an introvert, or if you're kind of socially awkward, you you experience a lot of embarrassing situations every day. You You feel like, you know, people are looking at you strangely, or you feel like you've screwed up quite often every day. So doing that in a video is kind of the same. It doesn't really feel that different from having awkward social moments in my regular everyday life. Uh, yeah, I, w I was wondering, like, given the amount of feedback you've been getting from all these uh, videos, has something really touched you? Because sometimes when you're breaking through to millions of people, you might be surprised by a couple of comments or even somebody that you met in real life that uh, you would never have expected beyond people just saying, thank you, this was interesting. Like, I, I'm very curious what deeper responses you've gotten to your videos. Yeah, I get a lot of deep responses like that. Like um, a lot of people tell me that I inspired them to major in a certain language in university or that I, I inspired them to major in linguistics and now they're in their third year and they love it. So they're thankful, that kind of thing. That's a bit crazy because I mean, crazy in, in a, in a good way. I mean, because I never really expected to have that impact. I thought people would just watch the videos and say, wow, that's interesting. But I guess when, when you're creating something public like that, I guess some people will just, will value it uh, more than you expect. And I think if they see you as, I mean, people tend to see someone on the screen as an authority, even though I don't see myself as an authority. But if they see you as this authoritative figure talking about a certain subject, it makes them feel more comfortable delving into it and sort of indulging their interests. So yeah, it's, it's strange to have that, that effect as a public figure, but I think that's part of it. Just people see you on the screen doing this thing about this particular topic and they think, wow, I really want to do that too, or I want to get into this topic because this guy's doing it. Yeah, I never expected to have that sort of effect on people. But yeah, the content does seem to do that. For some people, it's just interesting. They just think, okay, that's cool. But other people get really into it. And they they watch every video or they watch every video on a certain language, and then they take it further in their own lives. That's one of the things that helps me to keep making the videos, even though they're really tiring and really um, 
exhausting to make because I know it's going to have that effect on at least some of the audience. That leads me into a really good question I have for you. How do you deal with fatigue and burnout and continue to push through creating content or comparable learning languages? What strategies do you use to keep doing what you're doing? Well, I think, I mean, just doing what you're interested in helps to alleviate that. If you're feeling stressed about your work, then it, it, it has a much bigger negative effect on you. But if you are really motivated and passionate about it, I think it feels more like you're doing your hobby, right? So it's not as exhausting or tiring, but you still have to take care of yourself physically. So I think just getting the, the same amount of sleep every night or you know, going to bed and waking up at the same time every day, that's been really important for me. I had to fix my sleep schedule when I got started. Exercising is important. And yeah, I think just having those guaranteed breaks, that time with your family, um, that kind of thing, the time for, uh, for exercise having those breaks built into your schedule. Maybe some people do that naturally. I really need to, to commit to certain, certain time slots for different things. I really need to keep it organized. Otherwise, I'll just sit at the computer all day and then get exhausted and not be able to, to keep going. So having passed the million subscriber mark, like what do you see as your future now? Because, you know, rather than just think, oh, two million and five million, like, uh, do you have other goals in terms of how you're going to expand your channel or how you're going to expand your business or how you might have uh, an impact in the language learning world? What do you see as your future now? For LangFocus, I think I'm just going to keep doing more of the same for now, but I'm really interested in creating educational content. I actually have a second channel, which I, I do called the GeoFocus channel, which I sort of rebooted in the last few months. And on that channel, I profile countries. Not only countries, but I could talk about like different regions of the world or different cultural groups around the world. Like it's more about geography and anthropology and history and that kind of thing. So I really like creating educational content, mainly about languages, but about other stuff too, because my interest in cultures and in different countries is connected to my interest in languages. So I plan on developing that channel and I'm doing that channel more with a team. So I can do both at the same time because I'm not doing everything myself on that second channel. But for LangFocus, yeah, I mean, I, I'm continuing to do more language profiles. And I think I might change the format or uh, adapt it in the future to make it a little more like fun for me and a little less intense, maybe simplifying the content or doing topics more about my own learning and that kind of thing. Yeah, just, I, I might play with the content a little more and just have some more fun with it because it's been really intense creating those detailed videos, right? In terms of turning it into a business, I've never really seen my channel like that. Like I do a little bit of, of affiliate marketing and you know promoting some products that I like, that kind of thing, but I've never turned it into a, a full-fledged business. It's more just like a, a YouTube channel that happens to, to be the way I earn a living as well. It sort of ended up like that. So one of the questions we always like to ask our guests, given that this is the Language Hacking Podcast, is what is your definition of language hacking? Language hacking, I guess, means finding things that can help you maximize your time or be more efficient in learning a language. So in my case, I find that analyzing sentences and figuring out the syntax of a language is sort of what I can leverage. That, that helps me to make sense of a language more quickly than, than I could. Otherwise, and by that, I mean like looking at example sentences and breaking them down myself, like looking at a phrase book and trying to pick apart the pieces of the sentence and figure out which word means what by comparing the English translation and the sentence side by side. So really just sort of breaking down 
the syntax of the language. And that's basically what I do in my videos when I do the language breakdown part of the video. I'm looking at example sentences and taking them apart and seeing which part means what. So for me, that's really the, the thing that gives me leverage. It helps me to understand the language more quickly. But then beyond that, you have to get in there and develop those applied skills using the language, which comes from practice. So this has been a fascinating interview. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining us. We will, of course, have uh, links in the show notes to uh, how people can find you online, including obviously your LangFocus YouTube channel. And um, I really appreciate you joining us today. I found this very interesting to hear the, the background of how your channel kind of grew. And uh, I wish everybody who has been listening to us a very happy language learning. Happy language learning. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Happy language learning. So, Benny, as always, we like to share what we took away from our discussion with our guest, um, something that we'd like to try out in our own language or something that really resonated with us and something that our listeners can try out over the next week in their own language learning. So what was your takeaway from our discussion with Paul? So something that he said with how he uh, pushes through the challenges of being an introvert, I think can be applied universally to so many uh, setbacks we feel in language learning. And that's that you feel like you're screwing up anyway. So why not just go ahead? Because it's not so different. And I think this really embraces this mistake focus approach that I like to talk about so much, that even if you find like an aspect of your personality is going to create a setback, embrace that and just decide, do you know what? I'm an introvert. I'm going to feel awkward. I'm going to feel like uh, everyone's judging me, but I just accept that as a part of my experience and I'm going to push through it anyway. So I like that he uh, talked about that. And I also found his tidbit on phonology and how important that is at the start. Uh, I wouldn't quite agree with him that it needs to be the absolute beginning, the first thing you have to learn in a language. But I do agree that it's a, it is a very important way of distinguishing how your accent comes across and that we can uh, make a better priority for phonology and sounding out particular uh, syllables of words a lot better. What was your takeaway? I would have to say my takeaway was in regards to the non-negotiable routines. I find that as a parent, my schedule can be quite unpredictable at times. So one of the things that I've done is try to create as much of a routine as possible so that that way I know when I can fit in the things that I want to do for myself, whether it's creating music or language learning. And so creating those non-negotiable routines, I think is really important. And like Paul said, I kind of had the same experience when he misses out on his morning workout and morning study. He often is really frustrated the rest of the day and feels like, oh, I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to do this. And I feel the same way. If I don't get the things that I commit to on a daily basis done, I do feel that kind of frustration rising. So with the people around you kind of establishing, like, this is when this needs to happen. If it doesn't happen, I'm going to be stressed out and it's not going to be good for anybody. So um, we just need to work together to make sure that this happens. And so kind of setting that with the people who, you know, rely on your schedule in some sort of way so that they understand what you need. It's, it's I guess it's boundary setting, I suppose. But I definitely found that to be 
my takeaway for the episode. So to close out, once again, you can listen to our long form extended chat with Paul over at languagehacking.com slash Patreon. And you can let us know what you think of the podcast and this episode in particular. We love hearing from you. And you can do that at languagehacking.com slash review. And finally, all of the resources, links, and everything else mentioned in this episode are available to you as a part of the podcast show notes. So until the next time, happy language learning. Happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Katie Pasco, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and happy language learning.